Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, imagine what it must have been like for a fledgling ecologist to share with her colleagues, mostly men, her notion that trees and plants talk to each other. That's what Professor Suzanne Simard did early in her career. Suffice to say, it didn't go over well. The derision she faced forced her to switch for a time to a less controversial discipline, climate change. Fortunately, Simard returned to the work of understanding how and why, quote, a forest is much more than what we see, unquote. The hard science behind her findings has begun to change how scientists and lay people understand the intricate societal connections that make a vibrant, sustainable forest. It turns out there are many ways in which humans might want to emulate those plants and trees. Samard is now renowned for her work on hub trees, or mother trees, the largest trees in forests, which have a central role in vast underground mycorrhizal networks. A mother tree supports seedlings by infecting them with fungi and supplying the nutrients they need to grow. Samard's new book is The Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. About it, the strangers Charles Mudede wrote, quote, I reached the conclusion that Samard spoke like someone who had been raised by trees, in the way Tarzan was raised by gorillas. Unquote. Suzanne Samard is a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. She is interviewed here by the writer and teacher Sarah Santillas, the author of Stranger Care. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation on May 10th. Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson introduced the program. We're delighted and honored and thrilled that Suzanne is joining us from her home in Nelson, British Columbia um, to talk about this book, which um, uh, draws on her work over the years, which draws on her whole life's work um, of knowing and uh, seeking to know and understand um, the trees that we live among and that live among us and, um, and how they relate to each other in ways that um, Western science and our practices of, of working with trees and using trees and living with trees haven't really taken um, account of. And um, it's, it's an extraordinary tale she tells. Tonight, she will be talking about that. And one of the things, many things that happen in this book is, is she encounters surprises um, because the book is really set largely in, in the field, in, in among the trees, among the forests, and there's encounters with unexpected other, others. Um, until a day or so ago, the plan was that I would be doing the conversation with her. But this past Friday, we had the pleasure in this very same time of hosting the writer Sarah Santillas, who um, has herself written a, a new book, which also came out a week ago last Tuesday, called Stranger Care. Um, Sarah and uh, Cheryl Strayed did a conversation about Sarah's book, which is um, in part, in great part, about her and her husband's quest to become foster parents, but really is a deep exploration of what 
it is to be a parent and to be raised and how we raise and what a family is and who who among us you know is looked after and it's it's a very smart moving book including for the ways it reads situations beyond what you might think and early in the book she quotes um earlier writing by suzanne samard about trees and their relation to each other and in the conversation we had last friday was with sarah she's we asked about suzanne's book did she know about the book because we're telling everyone we know and she says oh i would love to read it i would love to meet her i would love to see her and my colleague karen says well, what are you doing on monday <laughs> so um in quick order uh she has read suzanne's book and brings will bring to this, I think, a wonderful kind of, not only a fresh um, reader's eye, but her, it's a very knowing eye. Um, she's even been to Nelson. She lives in Northern, in Central Idaho. So um, they, these two are actually in some physical proximity to each other. So Sarah will ask, do, do the conversation with Suzanne and, and cover the ground they cover. Um, and we hope you will put questions in as well. And I will come in later and work with those in um, for what, this is, um, I, the, you know, this book has so many stories within it, and um, uh, that um, just to get get it going, and I know people have already been getting the book, which just came out, um, but uh, many, many more will as well. So I'm going to stop talking now, and um, to say thank you all again for joining us, and now please um, join in giving your good, warm attention and. Um, virtual applause to Suzanne Samard and Sarah Santillas. Thank you both. <laughs> hi, um, hi, Suzanne. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful to Rick and Karen for inviting me to talk to you. I, I just feel this, it's such a huge gift. Your writing and your work has really shaped my own thinking about the natural world and my own thinking about humans and our responsibilities to each other. Um, at the heart of stranger care is that question, who, who do we care for and why, who do we not care for and why? Um, and I think you really expose our limited stories about what counts as family and who should be tended um, and what our responsibilities are to, to, to each other and to this planet and the beings we share it with. Um, so first, would you like to read something? I think you said you'd like to read and then yeah. um, we'll begin. Yes, thank you, Sarah. And I'm really delighted to that I get to meet you and I'm looking forward to, to reading your book as well. And, and also thank you, Elliot Bay Bookstore, for having me. I really, really appreciate this. Um, so I'm going to read a little passage from a chapter called Nine Hour Commute. And just as a preamble to this, this is um, when I was a young mother. Um, my kids were um, four and six years old. And I was commuting between my university and my home in Nelson. And it's a nine hour commute. And I had stopped partway along to look at a forest that my one of my graduate students, um, Kevin Byler, was going to use to map uh, the wood wide web. So here we go. I ran my thumb across the tip of my trowel to make sure it was sharp and followed a thick root running from the base of my first old tree to where it tapered to the width of a finger and I sliced open the forest floor in search of rusty brown truffles, the scabby below ground mushrooms of rhizopogon. The trowel cut through the litter and fermentation layers and split open the humus to reveal the dense grains of under underlying minerals. Where the drizzles of humus and the weathered clays came to rest and roots and mycorrhizas foraged for nutrients. After half an hour, Mosquitoes biting my forehead, my knees sore on twigs, 
I hit a truffle, the size of a patisserie chocolate. It was resting smack between the humus layer and the mineral horizon, and I scraped away the organic crumbs and found a beard of fungal, black fungal strands running from one end of the truffle to the old tree's roots. I followed another pulpy, pulpy skein in another direction, and it led me to a cluster of root tips that looked like white translucent pussy toes, which is a kind of plant. The fine soft brush I'd borrowed from Hannah, my daughter's paint set, was perfect for sweeping them clean. One root tip was especially wel welcoming and I tugged it like pulling a stray th thread in a hem. A seedling a hand's length away shuddered slightly. I pulled again harder and the seedling leaned back in resistance. I looked at my old tree, then at the little seedling in the shadows. The fungus was linking the old tree and the young seedling. A shock of note nearby willows shivered and a yellow butterfly flittered across the meadow. The wind shifted. I looked over at the grasses hemming the fold of trees, blades ringing, tingling. My eyes were attuned to the edges where consortiums of bears and coyotes and birds linger and banter, but there was no movement. I tracked another route from the elder and found another truffle and another. I raised each to my nose and breathed in its musty, earthy smell of spores and mushroom and birth. I traced the black pulpy whiskers from each truffle to the riggings of roots of seedlings of all ages and saplings too. With each unearthing, the framework unfolded. This old tree was connected to every one of the younger trees regenerated around it. Later, one of my graduate students, Kevin Byler, would return to this patch and sequence the DNA of almost every rhizopogon truffle and the trees, and found that most of the trees were linked together by the rhizopogon mycelium, and that the biggest, oldest trees were connected to almost all of the younger ones in their neighborhood. One tree was linked to 47 others, some of them 20 meters away. One tree bound to the next, and we figured the whole forest was connected by rhizopogon alone. We published these findings in 2010, followed by further details in two more papers. If we'd been able to map, if we'd been able to map how the other 60 fungal species connected the firs, we surely would have found the weave much thicker, the layers deeper, the stitching even more intricate. Not to mention the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi adding interstitial components to such a map as they possibly joined the grasses and herbs and shrubs in an independent web, and the ericoid mycorrhizas linking the huckleberries in their own network, and the orchid mycorrhizas with their own too. And that's that passage. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Um, I'm so glad you read it too, because I would have mispronounced so many of those words. <laughs> I'm curious if you read your own audiobook or not. Um, yes, I, yes, I did actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had to. I, yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to start with this idea of, of a creed. Um, kind of in the middle of the book, you, you write that you have a creed and your creed is nothing should be lost. Everything has a purpose. Everything is in need of care. So can you tell us more about this creed and how it shapes you and how you look at the world. Yeah, you know, I think after, well, just it's the history of my life. You know, I grew up in these old growth forests where, um, you know, 
everything grew together. There was just a tangle and abundance and diversity of plants. And uh, my grandfather, who was a horse logger, um, you know, he was very, very careful about taking only the trees that he needed, just the odd tree, and leaving the forest intact. And then, you know, when I started in forestry, forestry was so different. It was, it was like we were trying to dismantle the forest, take out members of the forest that um, that were naturally there so that we had, because we had this idea that we could control the forest, that we could make it what we wanted, right? These rows of trees, seedlings and trees eventually that would feed our marketplace, which was insatiable and still is. And, um, and I saw that what we were doing was actually killing the forest instead of the other way around. Instead of making it more productive, it was actually making it less productive. And of course, way, way less diverse. And I started, you know, as I, I always knew in my heart that these this diversity was important, but you know now we know and people, my scientists have measured how, you know, all the creatures in the forest they work together to form this system. That their relationships with, with each other and their presence is absolutely essential to the functioning and structure of a forest. And and it turns out like all communities, our own as well, diversity matters. And and so yeah, so you know I understand now that and especially after watching foresters trying to pluck out the parts that they thought they didn't like, right? They would just say, oh, we don't need those alders. We don't need those, those nice orchids. We don't need, you know, the pyrolas. We're going to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And how arrogant of us, right? And, and then the forest falling apart after that and, and really hitting home to me, uh, not just through, you know, through the science, but also my observations and my own understanding of forests that, that we need to keep all these parts, just like Aldo Leopold said, you know, all those parts work together. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you use the word arrogance, um, because one of the things I was thinking about when reading your book is, is how much your book is about um, our human misseeing or our misunderstanding of, of the world, our human failure to see. And I think you know, I, I do a lot of writing about, about racism and, and I think, you know, racism at its root, in addition to being structural, is also about our misseeing of, of each other and our deciding that um, we understand a person and we can treat them a certain way. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the failure to see and the damage that causes and how your work is an antidote to that. What a great question. You know, I mean, our failure to see underlies so many problems and our, 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 you know, our um, misunderstanding that we understand systems, social systems, as well as ecological systems. Um, there's a certain element of systems that that is unknowable, that is magical, that makes it, you know, this whole and uh, vibrant place, including our cities, including our ecosystems. Um, and, you know, the, the thinking in science that we can, you know, that we can actually understand and predict almost everything to, you know, 100% would be great. And so that we can absolutely predict how the future will look and in our, you know, in the way that we want it to look. Um, and then, you know, and thinking that we can do that, like, how, why did we ever think that? But, but we did. And, and that has led, you know, socially, environmentally to so many problems. And um, yeah, so, so that, those parts of uh, those unknowable parts, those important rare parts, or even, you know, not even rare, but less, you know, mar more marginal parts, they're all so important. In fact, sometimes those smallest things, you know, those most insignificant, what seem insignificant, insig 
insignificant are some of the most significant parts that make these systems work. That's that's so interesting because my my background is in theology. I'm not a religious person anymore. But I I'm what I'm interested in about a religion is um, the capacity to um, live in mystery. You know, you have fundamentalism, but then you have this other kind where it's about what can't be known and the humility that 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 requires. Um, if all of our human constructions will fall, fall short, um, and in that book we were talking about earlier called Vibrant Matter by Jane Bennett. She um, talks about this idea that we knowers should be haunted by the nagging feeling that something's been left out. Mm-hmm. And I think that you and your scientific practice took that, like you, you were haunted by these things that you saw and by the nagging feeling that we were missing things. So it feels to me like your, your work is an antidote to that kind of um, fundamentalism that can plague, plague science or the idea that we can know things for sure and then turn it towards the use for capitalism or whatever kind of yeah. system they want to use. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's a really good analogy. I, I think that I never thought of like the science as fundamentalism, but you're right. The, the analogy is basically very, very similar. It's it's you know that we can tear it down to its parts. We can understand it. We can control it. And uh, you know, in in scientific theory, we call that top down, right? That we can superimpose our 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 if it's religion or our worldview or you know even you know that yeah that this idea that the marketplace can control everything um, mm-hmm. when when really though so much about the world is that that diversity has got to work together to make that, those parts of it that make it such a wonderful, beautiful place for us to live in these areas, right? In, or on this earth, it's, it, all, it matters so much, these, these small invisible things. Yes. Um, so at one point in the book, you make a promise uh, to the trees that you mm-hmm. will, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about that promise and how it connects to your writing of this book. And my cat is making an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, yes. Well, you know, I had cancer, right? And uh, I think I wrote, I wrote this after I recovered from cancer, or I was in recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was such a, such a struggle, that whole period of my life. Um, and I've, I, you know, and it had, you know, it had, had that cancer had come right at a time when I was, had just left my I was just freshly divorced from my husband. I was um, struggling with trying to keep up with my work. Um, I was exhausted. I was watching our forests in British Columbia getting, you know, you know, degraded. I was heartsick about that. You know, it's a kind of a grief, really. Um, and I felt, you know, after I'd survived all this stuff and watching the forest still suffering, and we still hadn't corrected our behavior. Um, even though I was getting better, that I felt I needed to, I owed the forest back, you know, what I'd learned. And and also because, you know, one of the things that healed me was the was the chemistry of the yew tree, which I, you know, I live around yew trees and cedar trees and um and paclitaxel is one of the defense enzymes that the yew naturally produces. Actually, also endophytic fungi that live inside of the yew tree also produce paclitaxel which is really interesting and anyway it saved my life and and I thought well you know what I and just I'll try not to go on about this too much but you know in our as an example of how our behavior um, that I was trying to correct in some ways was that when they discovered paclitaxel in the yew tree um, it was actually the USDA that had made a list of all these plants that had anti-cancer agents in them um, and they had learned most of this 
information about plants from the Aboriginal people of North America. Um, so they'd actually gotten, you know, Aboriginal knowledge and they started screening these plants for, 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 for med medicines and and you the yew tree was high up on the list because the aboriginal people had used the yew the tinctures and uh po potions that you know the, the rubbing their skin to treat you know um different ailments and anyway so they discovered the the chemistry the, of paclitaxel and as soon as they figured out that it would actually have these strong anti-cancer agencies or agents uh, um that that the people people started like harvesting yew trees from forests like crazy in British Columbia. I would go to the forest and the trees would be completely stripped of their bark because it was in the cambium and it was like it was like capitalism gone amok, right? Except it was like horrifying. And and then they discovered you know how to synthesize paclitaxel and then the yew trees recovered. But that was just like that moment. And and I thought you know we need to really give back to these trees because. Um, you know, they've given us so much and, and, and we, you know, it's our responsibility to look after what has given us, you know, life and medicine and, um, and, and, you know, and to, and to, to make sure that we sort of honor what the Aboriginal people knew and they cared for these plants and what right did we have to go in and destroy them. Anyway, another part to the story is that, you know, so we were synthesizing paclitaxel in labs. And I thought, you know, those trees, it's a defense compound for them. When they get attacked by insects or pathogens, they produce taxol or paclitaxel, and it's their own defense chemistry. Um, and, and so I thought, what if we grew these yew trees in natural, like they grow in naturally in forests in the understory under big old cedar, old growth cedar with maples, and, and they form an arbuscular mycorrhizal network that's, you know, that's different. It's odd. It's, it's, it's a, their own unique little patch. And I thought, what, what if the neighbors, the neighborhood matters to paclitaxel production, you know, the natural production, maybe the quality of the taxol would be better. Maybe the quantity would be better. Maybe it would produce a, a more potent medicine. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I have a graduate student, Eva Snyder, and we've just discovered that, that these trees are, these arbuscular mycorrhizal trees, the maple, yew, and cedar that form a little community are all linked together in the forest. And now uh, Eva actually this very day is labeling the plants with, with isotopes to try and figure out how it's affecting movement of, of carbon and other compounds between the trees and, and whether or not it's gonna affect paclitaxel production. So, so I truly am giving back. And, um, and that is my own humble, small way of trying to do that. That's that's really powerful and beautiful. And I, I see that, that you talked about um, Aboriginal knowledge and Indigenous knowledge, and there's a question mm -hmm. in the chat that I can see, and that was one of my questions also, which is, um, you know, a lot of times um, uh, Indigenous knowledge or Aboriginal knowledge knows things about the earth that science denies for decades and decades and decades and decades, and then, and then science claims it and claims it as their own idea. So I was wondering if you could talk right about it in the book, but why don't you yeah, do. talk about the relationship between science and um, Indigenous or Aboriginal knowledge and how you navigate and think about that? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so Aboriginal knowledge, I mean, they um, is, you know, knowledge that's accumulated over thousands of years and it include and it's scientific. It's observing like science is observation and testing um, and looking for patterns. 
and repeatability of patterns. And that's that's what Aboriginal people did as well as us. You know, we we claim that we invented science, I think, but really that's absolutely not true. That's very arrogant of Western science to think that that was the invention of science. Um, the, the Aboriginal science has been around for thousands of years and they had discovered long, long, long time ago, I didn't know this, but that these fungal networks actually run through the soil and link trees together and they're, and, and they, the Coast Salish people actually um, think of the trees and the fungal associations as like, you know, as a one whole system and, and also give respect to these trees and fungi, you know, as equal to them themselves, you know, that, that, that these trees are of equal stature as humans. And that is actually not just a, a that's not a small worldview, that's an incredibly wholehearted worldview. And that is, um, and, and it's expressed, you know, in, in you know, for, for example, Subie, who is from, I, who is a Skokomish man, um, he's since passed away, um, but he called, in his writings, called the, the trees the tree people. And just as Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, calls the strawberries the strawberry people. So this just is just an expression of equality, right, and, and, and respect and reciprocity in the giving and and taking of honor and respect and um, and that's the part where Western science falls down is that you know Western science is good at observation and good at testing but has always viewed people as outside of the scientific endeavor that we're not part of it that that you know our subjects are kind of inferior to us and we're the superior observers mm -hmm. and that we manipulate these things and then we look at the little reduced parts and try to understand it um, but but in so doing, we miss the whole mystery because, or parts of the mystery anyway, because we're trying to look at all these little reduced parts and then we try to put it back together and say, oh, this is how it, how it works. But you can't really, you know, you can't take, a, you can't do a brain scan and, and then understand how you're thinking, right? It's, that's kind of a good analogy. Like there's so much more to it that, that we are not ever really gonna understand that magical part. And that, but it doesn't matter so much as, as long as you, understand that that the that the wholeness is important and um and that keeping all the parts and respecting them is important and that's what leads to a good um stewardship of land and stewardship of societies as well is respecting all those parts even if they're invisible to you and they're not part of your reductionist way of seeing the world yes um, beautiful. Um, one of the things I love about how you write is the way that you use um, language and how you apply language that we reserve for humans, like the mm -hmm. the, the human-centered uh, worldview of, of the West, um, and you apply it to the rest of the world. I mean, one of the ones that took my breath away was you called cutting down trees and execution when you were marking the clear-cutting mm -hmm. boundaries, yes. execution, family, mother, children, kin, all, the, all that language, mm -hmm. um, and you apply it to trees. So I'm wondering if you can Talk about why you why you think we have resistance to um, seeing the aliveness or the family structures in the rest in the rest of the in the rest of creation or the rest of the planet. You know, I think this um, idea that 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 the world is there for us to use, um, you know, which really has got a long history in you know Western religions and uh, Western philosophies and the separation of man from nature from mind from body, um, it again, you know, comes down to if if you can't, and, and if we don't understand it, that it doesn't really exist, or it's not important. Um, and, you know, 
we really have so much focused, you know, in the last, you know, especially since, you know, our theories of evolution have come up, you know, with Darwin about thinking that, you know, that we interact in such simple, simplified ways that communities of trees and forests interact in simplified ways, which is based on competition and domination um, and survival of the fittest when in fact, you know, that there's this whole complexity of the way things interact and behave and have relationships just like in our human societies. Um, but by ignoring that complexity or by reducing it down to something that we thought we could understand and then managing it that way, you know, in, a, in that way, in that very parochial way of seeing the world, it's actually been very destructive, right? It's been destructive to the environment, it's destructive to, to our societies, it's destructive to our, you know, our relations with all people, all races, all, you know, genders, all, all the, you know, the, the, the variety of life in the human society as well as our ecosystems. Yes, uh, you know, I, I think I thought the two images that stick with me are one. You talk about roots, like the, and I, I'm going to get the science wrong, so just go with like the <laughs> literary theme that I'm trying to pull up. But the 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 trees that have the deep roots that can access water mm -hmm. during drought, and that they bring it to the surface for mm -hmm. trees with more shallow roots to access. I was thinking about that. You know, I uh, my my writing is about foster care and and about um you know people have been asking well how do we fix foster care how do we fix foster care and it, mm -hmm. it's such a a question well we have to fix structural property first we have to fix you know our sense of what counts as a community we have to fix racism all the housing all those things and then you picking up the the roots of those um dying uh planted trees that were meant to be replanting a clear-cut area and seeing how different they looked from other roots in the forest and so i think that that to me is like a, a socio-political argument as well. Like we can't see things as isolated and we can't see things as only competitive. It's um, com communal, it's um, socialist, it's, you know, it's sharing, it's cooperative. And um, you really turn that worldview on its head in a really important yeah. way. I think. I think just trying to bring a more holistic understanding to these complex relationships, you know, it's not any one or the other of any one of those things. It's a, It's very, highly evolved it's highly intelligent you know it's it's um these systems work well they're you know they've evolved to heal and to be productive um and you know when we start dismantling them they lose that integrity that resilience and yeah so it is so important i'm curious about your writing i i, I imagine that i don't know if you I think you're writing, you're writing about your experience with cancer and then you're writing about your brother. It's incredibly beautiful in the book. And I was wondering if you knew you would always write those personal parts or if you had intended only to write about trees or like, did you get forced to write that? Or was that, that, that That's desire a good question. There? No, I was not forced to write about that. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've published over 200 journal articles in scientific journals and, um, and, I, and I've done, I've done that. I've, all my work is peer reviewed. Um, so the science is solid and, you know, writing science is, it's, it's a craft, it's an art, um, but it's, it has its limits. And, um, and, and I always wanted to, to write the fuller story um, of what the meaning of the science was, what is the life behind this? Like, it wasn't just a scientific endeavor that came from nothing. It was, it was my life, right? It's how I grew up and what I saw that we were missing. And also as a woman, what I saw that we were missing. And um, and so I wanted to have that fuller story out there. I, and, and I also love to write too. Ever since I was a kid, I love to write. So as a scientist, you get it drenched out of you. 
that creative part of writing. And so I, I wanted to write that part too. And and I wanted, yeah, I, I also, you know, I was getting a little bit frustrated because I could see other people were writing popular science books about my work. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, you know, okay, so that's a little slice of what I did. And it's like plunked into a bigger story of whatever they think is important. And, and I, I found that quite frustrating. Um, and so I thought I need to tell the whole story here. Like this, this science didn't just, it's not like, like a money or an apple growing on a tree. It's actually the whole tree It's the whole forest. I need to explain this. And, and so that the, you know, the writing about my brother, the writing about my cancer, um, all of that played a role, right? It all influenced my thinking. It, it informed my work and my work informed how I uh, dealt with it. So it was yeah. important for me to do that. You write about grief really beautifully. Um, I've had my own grief in my life in the past two years, and I also country. I also cross country skied to get through difficult parts of my oh. life. So um, someday we'll have to cross country ski. Yes, again. we will have to. <laughs> yes, since we don't live that far apart. <laughs> no, that that would I found that really. Beautiful. That would be so cool. Um, I wonder if you could talk. I I so I have. I've been an academic and I also was in the church and got run out by sexism. Um, so I'm wondering if mm. you can talk about sexism in your profession and how um, mm. how I, that part that you were called Miss Birch as like, <laughs> you know, a way of calling you another word without saying that word. I'm wondering how, how being a scientist and being a woman affected your research, your ideas, how other people perceived your findings. If you could talk a little bit about how you navigated that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think any woman, well, probably every woman understands, but you know, every any woman that's worked in a male-dominated field field knows it doesn't matter if you're a firefighter or a policeman or or a scientist in a lab or you know if it's if it's if it's a male-dominated field and you're new in it, it's a tough road to hoe. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's it's pretty tough. And the more women you can get into those fields, the easier it becomes. But those pioneers. At the, you know that are just moving into it boy it's it's like you got to be a battering ram almost you know you got to put your head down and yeah the 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 insults the dismissal the you know just the exclusion is painful and um i don't i don't think that men realize how destructive it is for women to go through this and how we have to persist and i think that persistence you know i i mean really my you know, as a, as a girl growing up, even in a logging family, I, I kind of knew that from the beginning, it's kind of prepared me a little bit for it. Um, but, you know, but you just become, you sort of get into the survivalist mode and you just keep going, right? You just got to go. So, so there was that. And, and I've, it's gotten, actually, it's gotten easier for me over time. Maybe it's because I'm older now and I don't, it's, you know, I'm more established, but I think for, for girls and women coming up, it's, it's also a little, maybe a little easier because there's more of us women that have been in through it, um, but it's still going to have its challenges. And, and I would say, don't give up because what you bring to the field is so incredibly important. And so let me just talk a little bit about that. So, you know, in my field, you know, the, the field of forestry was dominated by men and the science of forestry was dominated by men doing that science. And their views were that, you know, competition was the thing that mattered the most, especially competing for light, because that's what they could see. Um, and, and this other, you know, that, that species could actually, actually, you know, collaborate or facilitate each other, help each other out was like, are you kidding? You know, but I had, I wanted, I was so important for me to bring that 
understanding to forestry because the way I see it is like it's like understanding forests with one eye closed right you only see half of it and when you only see half of it you make so many mistakes and women bring a unique perspective we see things differently you know we we have our own way of of seeing how things fit together and work and 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 you know we can we can bring things together. We're we're very good at that sort of thing, and um, not and I don't mean that in a sexist sort of way at all. Or <laughs> it's just it's one of our powers, right? It's one of our superpowers, and and we as a society need to have all of our superpowers at play here. The women and stick with it and do your thing and don't let people be like try to distract you or put you down for your thoughts or, you know, because you matter, you're, what you're doing matters a lot. How did, how did you persist? Because it wasn't just, I think it wasn't just being a a woman in science. It was actually having very ideas that they were practically mocking. I mean, and, and dismissing and calling it anthropomorphic or whatever name calling they were doing. And I wonder what, what was it that gave you the, I don't know if courage is the right way, but Yeah, I mean, I think the anthropomorphism is just a recent thing since I wrote, wrote this book that I, I haven't had that or done a few films. And so that's pretty recent. And I would say that's another kind of dismissal, right? It's, um, you know, there's a reason for, for you know, for, for communicating this science using those words. It's so we can communicate and people can understand. It's also to bring this idea that we talked about earlier that we are all you know, we are one with nature, as according to the Hamokamun language. Um, and there's many words in, in the First Nations languages of that we are all in this together um, and we are all one. And and I, you know, and I, I knew that I we had to, I we just had to get this idea, this way of seeing, of viewing the world. I, I was a, you know, it became such important to me that I knew this was part of the missing, the missing thing. And and so I I just kept going and I I was I had already become a survivalist because I I had to as a girl growing up in the bush and so I always had that survival instinct um and that is really what carried me through all the difficulties um but yeah so the anthropomorphism is recent back then when I was in my late tw- my late 20s 30s and I was having children and my nature I published in nature my na- main results the early results and I was getting like you know, hit from all sides, academics, forestry, and it was tough. And my kids were, st- you know, they were t- little teeny kids. Um, and I was trying to, you know, I was trying to be at home with my kids and deal with this negative stuff. And I got to this point, actually, where I thought, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> you know, I thought, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at connection in forests anymore. This is too hard. I can't deal with all this myself, right? Like, and so I, I decided I was just going to do something easier like you know and I decided I was just going to study climate change which is way (laughs) more straightforward (laughs) and so I did start doing that but then I I got this job in in academia and that sort of allowed me to ask more you know to follow on my original lines of of inquiry which you know when I worked for the government they didn't really care that much about it in fact they as we talked about they tried to suppress it so um Yeah. yeah That's interesting. I think it's also connected to your sense of the promise that you made, at least like I heard that, you know, whenever you write something or research something and you put it out in the world, at least for me, it's so vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had to, I've had to set deep intentions for my writing practice so that 
like in, in this book, it's a love letter to my foster daughter. I wanted to write a book that would mother her when I was no longer allowed to. Now, when critics are saying things that are hurtful, it's like, well, I don't really care because I, yeah. I set out for what I did. So I think there's a way where when you find that deeper purpose or that deeper meaning or that promise mm-hmm. to, to the forest that mm-hmm. um, that can also help you. It carry does on. definitely. So I, I did have that higher purpose of like, and, and today, you know, like just to drive home the message, like in, in British Columbia, where I grew up, you know, I grew up in these forests. I grew up in a province of old growth forests. It's now a province of clear cut forests. Wow. And it's heartbreaking to watch. And now we have only 3% of our iconic old growth left. 3%, like what the heck, right? And it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. And and so, yeah, I mean, I'm driven to, to save these forests because, and, and to help people. I mean, people are literally blockading roads right now at Ferry Creek on Southern Vancouver Island because they're so passionate about this and they're right to be that way. And it's and it's to our all of our, um, they're doing us a favor because these old growth forests, which the government and industry are so intent on cutting down are, you know, that's where our biodiversity lives. That's where carbon is stored. That's where our clean water and clean air come from. The, once those forests are gone, you just don't grow them back like, like carrots, you know, it takes thousands of years and we don't have thousands of years to grow back for us. We're, you know, we're at a crisis now. And so there is a high, you know, there's a higher purpose for our kids, for the upcoming generations, you know, to, to all of us, you know, that those of us who know, if you don't know, well, then th- those of us who do know, it's our job to make sure that we can spread the word so that we can inform people, just like, you know, the epidemiologists help the rest of us figure out how to deal with the coronavirus. Well, you know, we as shepherds of the environment need to be out there, stand up there and say, no, this is not right. This is not good for any of us. Yes, that's so powerful. Um, I know Rick is going to come back on for questions, so I'll ask you one more. But um, you just talked about how we need to save, you know, save the forest. But in the beginning, you write, this is not a book about how we save trees. This is a book about how trees might save us. So could you talk a little bit about what you mean about that by that? Yeah, it's, you know, because, you know, trees, plants, plants are, especially they're our ancestors, and they, as I've talked about, they evolved, they co-evolved with fungi over millions of years, um, and they developed photosynthetic machinery, (laughs) you know, that that incredible biochemistry that is the origin of our lives, that produces oxygen, that that filters our water, ultimately, through higher level organisms, Um, they they basically keep the earth in balance, right? It's the biosphere that's in balance. And, and you know, that is what's made it a, a hospitable environment for us to live in. And in our whole, you know, our whole solar system, as far as we know, we're the only planet that has life like this. And it's a result of all these organisms working together, evolving to create this. And we've evolved in it too, right? We've evolved over millions of years to be, to live in this environment and here we are we're disrupting the whole thing because mm-hmm. we're so we because we were blind to it now we can see we can see enough that that this is so destructive um but but those trees are there they're regenerative um they're stressed out right now they're crying for, for help i was you know metaphorically and they need us to help and and we it's our you know it's our responsibility to do that it's a responsibility to us our kids our whole families you know, um, but yeah, because to let them do their job of saving us, of of providing the life support system that we uh, have evolved to live in. 
Uh, so beautiful. And I, I'm not, it, you said it's metaphoric that they're crying, but some of the research is they are, yes. I mean, they can send distress signals, right? And they can, yeah, they definitely uh, can send stress signals. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Through uh, the air, you... through the soil, you know, in their own bodies, there's this whole cascade of stress that happens that we can, we can easily measure. So yes. yeah, that is like uh, a cry. I read your work and then I went to do trail maintenance at a trail near my house and they assigned me the task of trimming, um, branches so mountain bikers would have more room and I was just like weeping trimming the, trimming the branches and uh, they thought who is this like weird lady and I was like I just read about trees they communicate they remember you know they're yeah. connected this is this is yeah and they would be they would be sending signals to each other saying hey Sarah's here cutting my branches my branch. yeah. <laughs> I know which why I was weeping but I have to just say to everyone you should definitely buy this book finding the mother tree it's so beautiful I, I had the privilege of reading it straight through and it's gorgeous and it will shift the way you look at what it means to be alive what it means to share the planet with trees what it means to um be part of this large ecosystem that we're, we're a small part and we're dependent on each other and so thank you so much for writing it thank you very much Sarah Whew. Sarah, thank you. Um, also, I'm, I'm just going to come in here a little bit with some of the questions that you're putting in. And please do, if you have are listening, have other questions. One, one thing I will say is, as these programs go, because of the times of day and people having other things going on in life, usually you start out with a certain attendance and it, and it starts going down. This, it's gone up. I think people are telling other people, you've got to log in and see what's going on because it's just been so both of you have been lit up and Suzanne, you, it's been um, amazing. So um, the questions, let's see, I'll do these from the Q and A. Um, Carl asks, and you probably, you said some of this, right? I, I think uh, asking about coastal forests that have scattered old growth fir trees with major conch rot. Do these trees provide nutrition to the younger surrounding forests? It's a real basic question. Yeah, so, you know, the, the experiments we've done where we've actually infected trees with pathogens. Um, so I think he, the conch rot he's thinking of is a heart rot. And we've worked more with root rots, but um, where we infect these trees and they actually do transmit messages to their neighbors, um, warning them, or and then the neighbors will eavesdrop on these messages that are transmitted through the mycorrhizal networks that link them all together. And, and so, yeah, there is, you know, as those trees are dying, you know, as they become infected and dying, that's a process. And that process includes communicating with their neighbors about defense and also distributing their energy to uh, certain neighbors, especially kin neighbors, um, which we found. So, yeah, I mean, it does elicit when, when you get an infection or disease or an infestation that elicits all kinds of signaling that goes on in these communities. It's just like, it, the talking or the you know the communication between the trees really lights up. Okay. Uh, Grayson uh, asks uh, here in Seattle, as an apartment dweller, what can I do to help the need for the diversity of trees and plants and forests that you've explored? Yeah, well, there's so many things people can do, and I think that's important. That's a really important message that you know. I think that. You know, these days it's easy to feel hopeless, especially during the coronavirus where we feel isolated and um, how can we connect with other people and do some meaningful things. And there's so much you can do. I mean, the first thing that if you're living in an apartment is to just, you know, go find a park or a boulevard or a forest or even grow a plant in your 
apartment or on your deck and, and grow consortiums of plants and, and watch how they interact with each other. And, and just by doing those simple acts, you start to understand the forest more and, and also just to love it more. And that, that is such, that's the fundamental foundation for then what you do next, right? Because to put yourself out there and do something to, you know, like if you're gonna protest or like they're doing in Southern Vancouver Island, um, you really got to, you know, that's a huge effort and we all have busy lives and it's difficult, um, but really it's come, you know, it's come to the point, at least in Canada. And I think, you know, you've got in the States similar issues that, that saving these last bits of untouched land is absolutely crucial. And it's going to take, it's going to take a transformational effort. It's not, it's tri not trivial and governments are hard to move, right? They're it's, it, like, they're so entrenched in what they do and their policies and practices are like moving at glacial speed, but we don't have time for that. So we have to instigate change that is more rapid. It's transformational. And if you're going to put yourself out there to really be part of that, you got to love the forest and see that higher purpose. And then of course, simpler things, you know, how you vote really matters. And I think, you know, we see that from election to election and how our lives and the, how the policies change. Like, look what the difference between Trump and Biden, right? What a huge difference. And, you know, Biden is doing some great things for climate change that, that are meaningful, right? That are gonna help decarbonize the future. And when you put those little things in place, by voting for the, you know, for progressive governments that are, you know, that honor regenerative kinds of practices, um, and they start putting these little things in place, they add up to a whole lot really fast, and that it can make a huge difference for making it a better environment, better for the forest, better for the trees. Thank you. Um, and Grace, I'd say, I'm not knowing for sure, but do read this book. Uh, that'll also help you with still things. Um, Shiraz asks um, about comparing fruit trees and non-fruit mm. trees. For example, olive, mango, and avocado have long life, life spans, and, and do these trees connect with each other? Um, so, I, you know, I don't know enough about the specific trees, all of them, but, but you know, I, I will say that all trees all over the world are dependent on these mycorrhizal relationships for um, for getting nutrients and water from the soil. And I think uh, most of the ones you just talked about, well, all of it anyway, um, they form arbuscular mycorrhizas, just like the cedar, yew, and maple that I talked about. Um, and yeah, so those mycorrhizal networks that they enter into and all just the relationship with the fungi, the symbiosis is important for their fitness, for them to able, able to survive and produce fruit and then carry on to the next generation. So conserving those connections in the soil between the trees is, is really super important. And, and I have to say, you know, with climate change, we're getting more severe fires. And I know people are worried about fire severity and how that might affect these networks. And, and it will, right? It will affect the networks. It, and um, yeah, so it, it's important that we try to keep them intact as much as possible. That doesn't mean like putting out the fires because fires are also necessary for regeneration of our forests all over the world, most places, not, not all, but most. Um, and they're adapted to fire. It's just these, you know, really severe fires where we can actually lose these networks. And so, yeah, um, I think that's going beyond a little bit about the question, but those trees that he mentioned are mycorrhizal. Yeah, good. Um, Two people, uh, Barbara and Jim, each ask a question. Barbara, a little more generally, and Jim, um, with more specifics about invasives. And I'll I'll mm. read 
Jim Jim's comes in a little more with he's got he's got mm -hmm. the language here. Um, is there is there much known about the presence of invasive tree species like white mulberry, um, and how they affect the fungal mycorrhizal networks which mm -hmm. native trees use to communicate? Also, do aliopathic trees have any adverse impact on the mycorrhizal networks due to the compounds they exude into the soil? Yeah. Um, so the first part of the question, and I'll try to remember the second part. <laughs> I, we can come back with it, yes. Yeah. Um, so the first part of the question is about invasive trees. And um, so Douglas fir has been planted all over the world at, as an exotic invasive and, and actually become naturalized in places like New Zealand and Northern Europe. And um, But when it was first introduced to, to New Zealand, um, it didn't have the mycorrhizal symbionts that went with it, right? They just took the seed and tried to grow seedlings and plant them out and they didn't survive or they did very poorly. Um, and so it wasn't until they figured out, well, they need their symbionts too and move those over to New Zealand that they actually were able to establish these trees and as whole systems and whole forests. Um, and so, yeah, so all these trees need their symbionts if, if they're gonna be successful invader, invaders. Um, some, a lot of invasive plants, and I don't know, you know, so I guess a lot of invasive plants are non-mycorrhizal, but that doesn't include trees actually. So things like cheatgrass, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, those really invasive plants, they, they reproduce a lot. They don't, they may, they, a lot of them don't need mycorrhizas. Actually cheatgrass does have arbuscular mycorrhizas. I take that back, but some of them just don't have them. And, um, or if they do, they'll tap into the networks that exist in the natural communities and actually, um, extract resources from them and steal the resources from them. Um, so, you know, they can be, and that that creates holes in these natural communities that invasives can actually get into the communities. So it's kind of, it's a complex story with them. And as far as the allelochemicals in, you know, like trees like black walnut that produce allelochemicals, do they transmit through networks? I don't know, but but my guess is probably we we know that herbicides, for example, can move through mycorrhizal networks. So, and we know that you know defense enzymes can, and and probably those allelo chemicals are, you know, I don't know for sure, but the, a lot of them probably are defense, some sort of defense chemicals, and we know those move through the networks. So, without having done the exact studies, my guess is that yes, that that they would. Um, Rand asks a question, which I. And I, I can't remember the science now that was talked about when you linked the maple, the yew, and cedar that you were talking about the newer research. But Rand's question is, do big, do old big leaf maples act as mother trees? Yeah, I mean, anything can, any tree, as long as it's the biggest, oldest tree in the forest, acts like a mother tree or the biggest, oldest tree in its network. Um, and certainly big leaf maples, when they're mature, there can be huge trees. And yeah, they, they would be mother trees as well in their own, you know, separate network from say the Douglas firs that may be associated with them that have their own mother trees. So it's, you know, it's a dynamic complex system and it, it's not, and we, it, we have to be careful not to simplify it down to one or two trees because these trees, they, they, they grow, you know, they taller and then they shrink back and then others will grow taller. It's a dynamic life cycle. And what became was a seedling suppressed in the understory at one time will be a mother tree later on in its life. Um, so it's, yeah, so, so the, the short answer is yes, those maples can be. One, one thing, I, a little observation, because um, this goes because you did, when you and Sarah were talking about the 
you were mentioned the student who's helped you or is doing this work that you're working mm -hmm. with on the Maple you and Cedar. And that's, and it's in your book too, you credit younger students and you name them and they're often young women and acknowledge their, their work because it's, it's a lot of people in a lot of fields, you know, they're the senior person. They take the credit for what mm. these, and if maybe nameless um, younger assistants are, are, you know, are mentioned, but you actually acknowledging is um, also a, a good thing and, and important thing and, you know, to be commended, so. Yeah. And, and they did the work. I mean, they, you know, that's their graduate degrees and I would did, did my graduate degree and I was able to build on that work and they'll build on their work. And it's, they need the support of us elders to, you know, to boost them up. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that it's the intergenerational part that also, mm -hmm. I don't think science heart, you know, Western science is that kind with um, that, that helping people um, in that way. It's, it's, and science is not the only thing. Nola asks, um, says, I recently learned about ghost stumps, stumps that are kept alive by trees around them. Mm -hmm. You know, what makes it so some stumps are kept alive this way and others not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually, Douglas fir is, is a re really good example that does that. Um, I call them living stumps, but in, uh, in so a lot of tree species uh, will graft with their own species. So they create these, they share cambium. So that's one avenue that, that sugars are transported from one tree to another, but of course, through their mycorrhizal networks as well. So there's multiple avenues through which these stumps will actually get sugars from live neighboring trees that feed into the phloem of the stump and it'll actually grow right over the phloem will grow and bark will grow right over the top of the stump and so it keeps it alive um, it keeps the root systems alive it, it's just a subsidy from the living trees around it so the stump is you know the cambium and the phloem is alive but but the you know it's not ever going to have a, a an apical meristem that's going to form another tree it's basically just being subsidized by the other trees around it and that stuff has a purpose too right it provides habitat for for animals like squirrels and uh and chipmunks and so on and salamanders um but also they are they're sort of like intermediaries that can help link the whole forest together because this tree is connected to that stump that's connected to that tree that you know so it, they help keep the forest cohesive Yes. Um, J Davis, that just the initial J, uh, does gives, you know, we're sort of wending back and forth here in, in different directions. Uh, okay, uh, the, an impossible question. What's been the most effective way you've found, besides writing the book, which is to be, effect, I think will be effective, to change hearts and minds of people who have not been heretofore sympathetic uh, or open to a more expansive mm -hmm. vision of the world and uh, such as you're talking about? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think one thing is, you know, hearts and minds, grassroots movements, um, getting the, the vaccine out there, those are all small things that start small, right? Um, it's, and, and I think, you know, ecologists are starting to think of systems as complex adaptive systems. And that that is what, that's what we're talking about, is that you know, all it, it's like all the people, all the, the naysayers, the, the people who are, you know, who uh, understand the work and invite the work, people who don't, you know, they, they communicate, they interact, they, they, they create an idea. Um, and, you know, and slowly the system will start to change, especially if you have thought leaders, right? Thought leaders are really, really important in changing hearts and minds. And, and I think that slowly, and this is how this knowledge has happened as well, that, you know, it's ignored at first, 
it was published, but it was ignored, it was ridiculed. Um, and then there's a little more work done and it's like, oh, maybe it's important. And oh, and then, you know, a little bit more work is done and it elevates a little bit. And then there can be like these transformational moments, these milestones that really move things quickly. That's how systems work, right? You get that thought leader or that mother tree or, you know, enough of the conversation going that suddenly you get a shift. And those shifts are starting to happen, right? And uh, and it's a cu accumulation of many things that actually move the needle. And and I feel like, you know, it is moving, and that's very hopeful. And we need that hope. <laughs> we really need that hope because it keeps people motivated. You know, for example, I just got a note tonight from the protesters on the blockades at Prairie Creek, and they're they're getting tired, right? Because there's they're not getting enough support, and there's not enough movement from the politicians to save that those old growth forests. But you know, slowly with gathering support, at least there's you know, it will happen. I, I feel like you know with enough. Uh, understanding and enough people pushing that that system will shift and that is how complex systems work and that, that is the hopeful thing about them. Sarah do you have anything else at this point? Um, no the, the only thing that I I don't think we've talked about is your idea that um, mother trees don't only tend their own young, but they tend strangers, which as an adoptive parent and as a foster parent really resonated for me. So I don't know if you want to talk at all about that idea of the, of taking care of, um, you know, the sure. trees that don't belong, that aren't theirs in some kind of way. Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. So, you know, we got so stuck on, on Darwinian, um, competition, survival of the fittest and carrying on genes, you know, the, the um, you know, the speciation that, 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 that we forgot, or we, you know, we hadn't advanced and we're only just starting to advance to the understanding communities, right? Communities are consortiums of all kinds of creatures um, in forests, you know, that, that includes like other species of trees and, or also the same species or even related uh, individuals within a species, all of those are important in creating community. And trees or mother trees will share almost as much uh, nutrition, carbon, uh, support for other species as for their own. Um, and it's because I, my understanding is after watching and studying forests my entire life is that a diversity of species, a diversity of individuals um, make a, a healthy community that that makes the community cohesive and strong. And if it was all one thing, it's very vulnerable and, and ultimately collapses. And so, yeah, so, so species mixes. And now we know, you know, really, you know, very careful studies showing that diversity actually does increase health and productivity of, of ecosystems. There's solid science on that. And, you know, and, and it's also like shown in my work as well, that this, 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 collaboration among species is real it's there it's important to the community it's important to the, the health of the community in very concrete ways yeah thank you yeah um, question. another question that came in um and this probably draws on that you have been are, are in academia but also worked in government and worked in for logging companies um mm -hmm. back in the day um and this rand and who lives in whatcom county just over the border from vancouver who asks um, that there is a, a, a conserved old growth forest with yellow cedar that's a thousand years old plus and 800 year old mountain hemlocks. 
how can that get studied from the perspective you develop? I mean, I don't know if that's a matter of asking other colleges or who, who does the studies is that, or the government or who does that work? Um, for individual patches of forest, um, you know, I, of course you have universities in Washington and all over the United States and all over the world that would be interested, I'm sure, in studying those patches of forest. Um, of course, there's only so many resources to go around and only so much energy <laughs> that scientists have, but probably the most important thing that you could do as an individual for that patch of forest is, is to get to know it yourself and learn about what's going on with it and you know what are the pressures on it and try to alleviate those pressures in some way because all these, you know, these old growth patches are vulnerable now because they're surrounded by, you know, by urban areas. They they're they're undergoing stresses with climate change and they, they do need our attention. And so I would say, if you don't have a university that's studying that patch of forest, you could ask them to, um, but even yourself, you know, you can get involved in it in, in many ways, each individual can get involved in it and it helps. It's really important to do that. And then also on the practical level, even more, more practical level, um, very basic, um, a question from Jim about when planting native trees saplings, is there anything humans can do to encourage and accelerate the development of mycorrhizal networks, such as adding mushroom compost or other fungal mm. material to the root zone? Yeah, so if, if you're on a piece of land that's really degraded, um, if it's lost its forest floor or the organic material, then it's important to add inoculum back in because it can be, um, you know, it, it could be have lost it, right? If, it, if it's been in an abandoned uh, agricultural field, for example, for a long time, it's really hard to get trees to grow back in those because the fungal inoculum has basically died out. And so then you need to bring it in. And um, and, the, and usually that fungal inoculum, the commercial inoculums that you can get, or you could bring in soil from a surrounding forest, um, those fungi will help the, the trees get established, but then they'll it'll disappear also fairly quickly because at least that's what the studies show that, that the natural community will, will take over in time as soon as once those trees get going. But at the beginning, it's important to make sure they have a good healthy inoculum that might mean adding it in. Um, circling back a little bit to you mentioned part of writing this book was others were using your work. And, and this question actually though is about what's been widely reported is this is a work of fiction, the overstory. Uh, you're mm. the, um, some version of your life and your work um, were depicted there. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? I, I love the overstory. I think it's a wonderful book. It's a beautiful piece of literature. Um, I, I loved reading it, the stories, you know, the twining of the stories together. Um, and and I'm, I'm proud that he used my character actually that, or that he developed his character partly on me. I think it's wonderful, you know, and it really brings to light you know, you know, people love fiction, they love reading stories, they love storytelling, and even if it's fiction that's embedded some science in it, that's okay, because it makes people understand this, or it allows them to be open and understand it. So, you know, kudos to Richard Powers for, for writing such a beautiful book and getting people engaged in forest and, and this idea of plant communication as well, and the, and the difficulties that's, that female scientists go through. Yeah. Since we're on that subject, and um, um, people who know me know I'm usually about the last one to report on this kind of news, but but um, finding the mother trees could be a movie too, like a Hollywood, like a feature <laughs> movie. Could you say a little about what I can't, because I don't even know who the names of people, other people have said, ooh, the so-and-so's going to be in it and direct um, producing it. 
who's who's involved with this? Yeah, so you know, um, I have an agent, Doug Abrams at Idea Architects, and he he had the idea that this would be a good feature, might be a good feature film, and so he went to William Morris Entertainment and said, "Hey, you know, what do you think?" And and we wrote a kind of a little treatment, or I, I, you know, I wrote a little treatment that I thought would be a good pitch for a movie, and and I think at first they were like, "I don't know." And then when they went out and pitched it, it was like, oh my God, they were like, it was competitive, right? So um, ultimately it was, it, the person who got the film was Amy Adams um, and she's collaborating with a production company um, called Nine Stories with Jake Gillen, Gillenhall. I, I, I don't know if I'm saying his right name right. Um, Jake Gillenhall and, um, and Reva Marker. And so we've got this, you know, this very strong team um, that's going to produce this movie. It, yeah, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. That's Great. amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you have to have a character model after Richard Powers since you could play around a little yeah. bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, with, yeah, yeah. With, um, it's funny, you know, I, my, my brother's son, who, my brother's son is Matthew Kelly Charles Samard, and he, my brother passed away before Matthew was born. And Matthew, um, so he never knew his dad, but he he's a cowboy. You know, oh. he became a cowboy, and 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 he, and he said to he said to me, Auntie, do you think I could play my dad in the movie? And I thought, what a beautiful thing. So actually, that's I've never said this actually before publicly, and, and I really haven't asked WME either. But I think that that would be so cool to blend the real yeah. life characters with with these actresses, these amazing actors and actresses, yeah. Well, that, that'll be something to see when that mm. all happens and that'll be something else. Um, I don't, I think we, unless there's anyone, I think we're, the questions we've come through, um, I think everyone's got a lot to carry around with this. Um, I don't know how you're good, Suzanne, how you wind down after these, um, but this has been remarkable. And I do, if we were in a room uh, together which I both wish we were, but I actually would rather, if we're gonna to be together, we were outside somewhere um, where mm -hmm. we could be among some trees and having this as a gathering. But um, there've been some other wonderful writers among us um, and two of them, uh, Grace Cho, who's reading for LA Bay on June 10th and, and a poet, Sylvia Pollock um, on May 24th are here, but also yes, um, Charlotte Gill, whom we spoke about earlier and Nikki McClure and Sonia mm -hmm. Lee and a few others are among nice. those, but I know there's other people here, academics who are doing good work and other activist people here doing good work. And, and thank you guys for, readers. yeah. Thank I mean, you everybody yeah. for being here. Um, and um, I've gotten some texts about people just going, wow, um, saying that during during the course of this. So um, thank you so much both. And uh, um, Suzanne, this is, yeah. Well, we do hope when things open up again and that you, we can get you down here to visit and do something um, in person and- um, I'd, I'd be happy, I'd be delighted to. So we'll get you- Yes, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll get to go to Idaho and go skiing with Sarah. Yes, let's go skiing, please. And we can maybe write together. Um, I would love that, yes. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it, please, yes. Yeah. This is a, this so also cool. these forms of connection. I mean, the, watching the two of you um, in, in the way that you talk about these, the, there's the slow way and then there's the, the this, this sort of the sudden way. And I think watching the two connect, I mean, I had, I've never met Suzanne before this, but I had reading and seeing things of, of her. And I thought you, uh, I thought you and Sarah could hit it off. And I think it really, it's certainly been yeah. what you've done here tonight. So um, thank you both. And thank you so much for this good work, this um, incredibly beautiful, vital, important 
work and um, uh, we will carry on and everyone get stay safe and um, say hello to the trees that you um, yes. know. That's <laughs> why I don't know what trees will be in the movie. Um, when that <laughs> Hopefully Doug. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank and you th so thank much. You. This is great. Thank you yeah. so much. Again. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Karen. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation with ecologist Suzanne Simard on May 10th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.